Romans chapter 2, I think what I do, I just I want to read the text for us. I'm reading out of the ESV translation and then ask the Lord just to simply do a work in this time. So Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would simply come by the power of your Spirit and do what could not be done otherwise. Would you incline our hearts in this room to your word Would you open our eyes so that we could really see the good and sweet things that are here? God, we are so prone to think and and be concerned about so many things. So, Lord, would you unite our hearts in this room to fear you as we see your truth and then satisfy us with your presence this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. I remember when I was 13 years old, uh, I and some of my buddies, we got... Uh, into BB guns. And at first we were satisfied with just shooting shooting at targets, but that became dull pretty soon, and so we began looking for squirrels. And after none of us could hit a squirrel, we said, hey, maybe we could hit one another. (laughs) And so we said, that's a great idea. Why don't we have a BB gun war? And so for about a week or two, we planned this war. We went to few different woods, wooded areas, and we said, no, that's the spot where the war is going to be. And then we got out all of our camo and other gear, and we said, this is what we're going to wear in the war. And then we divided up in teams. It was just four of us, so we had two on one side and two on the other. And we said, all right, tomorrow night, or tomorrow, it's war. Now, that was a Friday night, and that Friday night, we happened to go to Pizza Hut. And I don't know if you remember, but in the early 90s, Pizza Hut, there was like a couple weeks in the early 90s where Vanilla Ice was pretty cool. Trust me. And Vanilla Ice was in this movie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and he wore some glasses. 
And Pizza Hut tried to capitalize on that marketing scheme, and so they began to give out these sunglasses with these bright neon rims. Someone's like, yeah, I remember those. I'm wearing them today. Uh, And they begin to market, hey, come buy a large pizza. We'll give you some sunglasses. So we went to Pizza Hut that night, and the four of us said, this is the missing link because we were concerned. We thought, what happens, dumb and dumber? What happens if they shoot you in the face? You know, what happens if you get shot in the face? And this was the answer we'd have been looking for. Vanilla ice, Pizza Hut, sunglasses. It was brilliant. So we had our fill of pepperoni and sausage. Next morning, we got up early and we went out to the woods. And we had already decided which team got what uh, part of the woods. And unfortunately, my team drew the short straw and we had the low ground. And the other team had the high ground. And so we began. We had a, a, a signal Two BB gun shots on each side started the war, and we began. We heard the shots, we started the war, and we were off. And we battled for about 30 minutes or so, and we missed here, missed there. And it came to a point where my team, my buddy and I, we were, we were being cornered because, again, they had the high ground, and they, they had cornered us behind this fallen tree. And so we kind of had barricaded ourselves behind this, behind this fallen tree, and they were just peppering us, and we couldn't move. And so... After a few moments, there was a ceasefire of peppering, or so we thought. And so I said, I said to my buddy, why don't I peek around and see if I can get a good read on their position? And so as soon as I kind of peeked my head out from under that tree, a BB gun went flying from one of my opponent's guns. And you could probably guess where this is going. Vanilla Ice did not collaborate and listen this time. Those sunglasses were instantly shattered. And as Ralphie himself, I had got my eye shot out. (laughs) Thankfully, it was just a scratch cornea. I wore a patch for about two or three weeks, put some drops in it, and it was okay. But boy, did I rue the day when I placed my confidence in those neon-rimmed vanilla ice Pizza Hut sunglasses. It's a dangerous thing, isn't it? To place your confidence in something that will not hold you on the day of reckoning. (laughs) For me, that Saturday was the day of reckoning. But I think that perhaps as we sit here in this room, there could be some, if not many of us, in all seriousness, we are placing our confidence in something that is even more, more fragile than those sunglasses. It's exactly what Paul's addressing here in this text. He knows it's dangerous for us to place our confidence in that which will not protect us on the day of reckoning. And so he's writing this passage. Now, for those of you who've been with us the entire time, you've been walking through this series, I readily admit there might be a sense of, okay, we get it. Because at 116, which we just read, we heard, okay, this is Paul's theme. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew and the Greek, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Okay, we get that, and we know that for almost the last two chapters now, Paul has been showing how both the Greek, the ungodly pagan, and the Jew, the religious pagan, don't measure up. Both of them have been found to be wanting when it comes to God's scorecard. 
And so we looked last week that God is going to judge us based on our works in the sense of, hey, what have you done with what I have given you? How have you lived up to my standard? And hopefully what we saw last week, that none of us can live up to that standard, and it drove us back to the gospel. But in case we didn't, Paul says, you know what? This is worth unpacking even more. So in chapters 1, verse 18 through 31, he's saying, this is how, this is how it is that pagans are sinful. This is how it is that pagans will not live up to God's standard. And then from chapter 2, verses 1, really through verse 10, he's saying, this is how it is that Jews are not going to live up to this standard. Really on to verse 16. And now we get to our text, and it's like, man, he's still talking about Jews. Why does he continue to belabor this point? And here's why I think he continues to belabor it. I think Paul keeps beating this drum because he knows that within every single human heart, there is an active power at work that seeks to dull the offense of our sinfulness in God's sight. In fact, it's part of what makes sin, sin. Is that when we hear the good news preached, we say, well, I'm not really that bad. It's not really so bleak, is it, Paul? And so Paul, he knows the offense of the gospel has to precede the offer of the gospel. And he knows if the offense of the gospel is light, then the offer of God is also going to seem little. He knows if the offense of the gospel is not heavy, then the offer of the gospel is not going to feel healing. He knows this. If you came up to me this afternoon and said, look, we're doing this fundraiser we have 10 watermelons for sale for a dollar. Like intellectually, I would know, like that's a good deal. And my wife, my kids love watermelon. And so I would probably say, okay, give me 20. But I wouldn't feel it because I don't like watermelon. I know I'm weird. Like some of you can like witness to me after the service. I don't like it. I don't know if it's a texture or what. But if you met me outside the service today and you said, we've got 10 Krispy Kreme donuts for a dollar. I'm like, yeah, give me 30. And then I'll get some for my kids too, so make it 40. Because I feel that. The tragedy of our fallen nature is this. We have all of these needs in our heart that we say are are, are the needs that need to be met. And in fact, today there's, there's a, a big push from a lot of pulpits in many places to say, no, 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 you need to preach to the felt needs of your people. What Paul would say is, look, we need to preach the real need until it becomes the felt need. Because if the real need is not the felt need, it's gonna remain an unmet need. And here's the real need. Paul says, we need to know it is dangerous to place our confidence in our religious identity and our religious activity alone. It's dangerous to do that. Look again at verse 17. He says, look, if you call yourself a Jew, again, he's in the first part of chapter two, he was talking to kind of this hypothetical man and now he identifies him clearly as the Jew, the ones who've been entrusted with the things of God, the ones who have the privileged uh, position of being God's people. If you call yourself a Jew 
And then he begins to list about four different things to show that these Jews are doing a lot of religious activity. He mentions four things, and he says another word, he mentions four things again. And all he says in this first paragraph, it's dangerous to place our confidence in our religious activity. So he begins to show them, look, you have the light because you have the law, and it's good that you have the light, but it's not enough to have the light. If you call yourself a Jew, and get this, look at these four things. Rely on the law, that's a great thing to rely on. Boast in God, that's great to do. Didn't Jeremiah say that the wise man doesn't boast in his wisdom or his strength or his might, but in the spirit of God? Yeah, that's a good thing to do. And you know his will, that's good to know God's will, what he thinks is right and wrong. And you approve of what is excellent, that's good as well. Here we are. This, this is a group of people that says, look, we're boasting in God. That's what we're doing. We have the law. We're, we're lying on it. We know his will. And we're doing all this because, Paul, we have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. We have the light. Paul says, guess what? It's not enough to have the light. You know, I tried to look up how many English Bible translations there are, and I found a couple different websites, and it was just hard to keep count. We have hundreds upon hundreds of English Bible translations. It it hit me this week because I received an email about a ministry in Zambia. Uh, The Seed Company, many of you are familiar with Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Seed Company, but the Seed Company is working on a Bible translation in the language of Nsenga, for the Ela people. That's the language they speak. And I received an email this week kind of bringing us up to progress on where it is, but it says this, as they're translating the Bible, there's one pastor who comes, and every week he's getting a fresh edition. Hey, hey, what do you have next? What do you have next? Okay, John 11, that's great. He got John 11, and he just so happened to preach a funeral that week for one of his members. You know the story of John 11, right? Lazarus dies, Jesus comes to the funeral. And you remember what Jesus did to Martha, what he said to Martha before he rose Lazarus from the dead? You remember he's looked at her and he says, Martha, your brother's gonna rise again. She says, yeah, I know that on the last day. He says, no, 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 no. She says, last day at the resurrection. Jesus says, no, no, no. Remember that statement? I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. And everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Now, the Bible translation that the Elah people had been using, John 11, the way it translated John 11 was that Jesus got to the scene and basically just mourned with the rest of the mourners. And so this pastor has the fresh translation of John 11, and he's preaching at this funeral. And when he says that, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and then he says, Lazarus, dead man, come out of your grave, the people start laughing. The pastor's like, why are you guys laughing? And they told him later, they said, for our entire lives, we thought that story was just about how Jesus mourned with the people. We didn't even know he raised him from the dead. That's awesome, they said. Probably like, Quambili. I don't know exactly how they said it. Could you imagine? Just imagine having not known that. I mean, we're so primed on that. When we sit down at a funeral, we're thinking, all right, 1 Thessalonians 5 or John 11, which one, preacher? 
I mean, we know that's the text. We have the light. Paul says, it's not enough to have the light. Well, okay, Paul, we might argue. Okay, we do have the light. I know it's not enough, but look, I'm not hiding my light under a bushel. I'm teaching the word, Paul. I'm shining my light. And Paul says, you know what? That's not enough either. It's not enough to have the light, and it's not enough to shine the light. Look at what he says here in verse 19. He says, you, we already read it. You're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In the Old Testament, God called his people to be a light to the nations. And indeed, we see in texts like Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, or in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we see this prophecy of this end time where God's people will be like this magnet, where the nations are drawn into their light. And they come and learn about the one true God. They exchange their swords for plowshares, and they learn war no more. Isaiah 49, 6, in speaking about the Messiah, it is said, it is too small for you to be a light to just to raise up the restored or to restore the lost tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light to the nations that the ends of the earth might see my brightness. So it wasn't wrong for the Jewish people to be a light or to shine a light to the, quote, pagan heathens. They did that well in some respects. You know, in Acts chapter 8, that's what the Ethiopian eunuch was doing. He was coming to Israel. He was coming to the light. He had heard a little bit about the one true God, and he said, where can I find out more? They said, you better go to Jerusalem. He said, okay, I'll go. He was coming, and many think he was trying to be converted to Judaism because that's where the light was. They said, hey, come and see. We'll show you the light. And they even said, hey, you know what? We'll go and tell and shine the light for you, which is what Jesus picks up on in Matthew 23. But he says, hey, guess what? Whenever you do that, you go across nations and you make proselytes. And he says, quote, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. It's Jesus' quote. Why the harsh rebuke? Because it's not enough to just have the light. And it's not enough to just shine the light. Why is the question? Because if you have the light and shine the light, you gotta live in the light, right? You gotta live in the light. True believers must live in the light. Practice what you preach, match the 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 talk with the walk, however you want to put it, but it's an axiom, it's true. True believers must live in the light. That's why Paul says in verse 21, hey, you who teach others, don't you teach yourselves? And then he lists these three big, shocking, blatant, egregious sins. Thievery, adultery, and idolatry. Many stop when they read that and say, wow, was there a problem in the church of Rome? Like we're... we're, we're were the Jews or others in the church notoriously sleeping around or were they stealing or were they actually robbing temples? And Probably not. 
What Paul is probably doing, he's probably taking some of the three grossest categories of sin, just like any good preacher does sometimes, and as a kind of a rhetorical tool, he's using this agree, these egregious categories to drive home the point that the Jews violated the very law they possessed. It's kind of like the first century equivalent of, hey, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't kiss on girls that do. That's what Paul's saying. Let's see if you're still awake. He's not saying, look, I'm, I'm calling you out because, yeah, I know, oh, 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 brother Claudius, yeah, I heard what he's been doing. No, that's not what he's doing. He's just saying, look, here are the broad categories, and by these broad categories, I want to smite your heart to make you realize the law you're so glad you have, the law you're so proud to shine, if you're honest with yourself, it's not the law you're living by. And he says, when you fail to do this, it's the epitome of hypocrisy. You claim to have the light, but do not live in the light. If you are going out and shining the light, but do not live by the light, it is the epitome of hypocrisy. It is teaching someone to dunk on a 10-foot goal when you yourself say, I'll lower it down to six. It's the epitome of hypocrisy. And more than that, failure to do this, failure to live in the light, it's the essence of evil. Now you say evil. That's pretty strong. I mean, I might be a hypocrite. I don't think I'm evil. Which I think Paul would disagree. Let me, let me show you why. Remember in chapter one, remember Pastor Colby preached this a few weeks ago? Verse 18, where it talks about the wrath of God being revealed against the pagans. You remember why it's being revealed? Look at verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not do what? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and then they created all these, these images and started worshiping metal images, right? So, but there's the key. They did not honor him as God. They did not put God in his place. Notice what it says here as well. He says, you, verse 23, you who boast in the law do what? You dishonor God by breaking the law. The same indictment on the pagans is the same indictment that Paul places on the Jews. And the ultimate essence of evil is to dishonor God. And you can do that by going and getting a metal image and holding it up and worshiping, or you can go and do that by getting a glass mirror and worshiping it. The image you see inside, namely self. And Paul says both are dishonoring God. And if you remember in Jeremiah chapter two, verse 11 through 13, that type of dishonor where we exchange the glory of almighty God, the one who is in and of himself righteous, he is the only one who can provide the righteousness that we need. When we exchange that either for metal image or glass mirror, Jeremiah two eleven says it's evil. Remember that verse? God speaking through Jeremiah says, my people have committed two evils. And you think, whoa, 9-11, conspirator, murder. What's the evil he mentions? They've committed two evils. They have what? Forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and made for themselves their own cisterns. 
broken cisterns that can't hold any water. But Jeremiah, you said you call that evil? That just sounds like maybe a, a preference. Or, or maybe just misguidance. And Jeremiah says, no, it's evil. And Paul picks up on the same idea. To dishonor God means we're exchanging the treasure of who he is for something we make or something we see in ourselves. And that is rejecting him for other lesser treasures. When we exchange the treasure of who God is as the all satisfying fountain of joy with any other lesser treasure, it dishonors God and that dishonoring is evil. That's why the first commandment, which are 10 gifts to us, right? Those 10 commandments, 10 gifts. The first one says, no, don't have any more gods than me. This is a gift. I'm gonna realign your heart. That's why the first petition in the Lord's prayer that Jesus wants us to pray daily is, may your name be honored. And that's not just talking about out there. That's talking about deep within. May your name be honored. Hallowed be your name in my own life. Failure to live in the light, it's the epitome of hypocrisy. It's the essence of evil. And because it is evil, let her see here in your outline, it's the enabling of blasphemy. It's the enabling of blasphemy. That's why he says in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you. And there he's quoting Isaiah 52. Some think maybe he's quoting Ezekiel 36. But it's true. When you have the light and you shine the light, but don't live in the light, you blaspheme the God of the light that you claim to follow. You bring dishonor on his name. People look at your life and say, that's the life of a follower of the one true God? Yeah, I don't think so. God's concerned about his name and how it is viewed and honored and with what level of gravity it is felt amongst the nations and amongst the people we work with. And the folks at the soccer field and the baseball field and even the football stadium. And the folks we do commerce with, the folks we, we buy our, our watermelons from and our donuts from. He's concerned about how his name is viewed by us living in the light. That's why companies at times will send their employees around to thrift stores to buy up all of their old uniforms because the manager at UPS doesn't want some Yahoo with a UPS uniform on going into a store and holding the clerk up at gunpoint. That's going to look bad on the name of UPS, right? We fail to live in the light. We are giving this lost world, this morally decadent culture, we are helping them say, Amen to their intentional and violent agenda to bring the things of God into disrepute. We are allowing them a platform from which they can yell it. See? See? It's dangerous to place our confidence in just our religious activity, but it's also dangerous to place our confidence in our religious 
identity. That's what verse 25 through 28 is all about. And to show this, to show the Jews in the church in Rome just how dangerous it is to trust in their religious identity, he goes straight to the thing which is the primary marker for any Jew, namely circumcision. Verse 25, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, if you live in the light. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes undone. It becomes like uncircumcision. And then he says, so if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who's physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you in the sense that his scorecard against your scorecard will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. You remember back in Genesis 17... That, that, was, that was when circumcision was instituted, right? You remember that time? Abraham had already had like two God moments, which I was telling, I was with the college students on Wednesday night and kind of made this as an aside. I'll do another aside. But isn't it encouraged to know, encouraging to know? Sometimes when you read the scriptures, you feel like, man, these folks, man, they like had visions of God like every day. And man, they, they had like awesome quiet times and they were always on the mountain. And no, like Abraham had three mountaintops in his life three or four, like three of those like God moments. And every time he had a God moment, like something radically changed. So you got to know, like if you were one of Abraham's servants in Genesis 17, like let's just say there were some servants of Abraham. I'm going to have three servants of Abraham. Let's just call them Bob, Sam, and George, okay? Sounds like good Hebrew names, right? Let's say you're George and you're out in the field that day. You're working for Abraham. He's got some cattle. You're out there with the cattle. You come in, you have no idea Abraham's had this God moment of Genesis 17. But you come in, and you notice there's a buzz around the camp. And so George, he comes in, and he's got Bob and Sam. He says, hey, Bob and Sam, what's going on? And they say, hey, the master's had another God moment. He's like, cool, where are we going this time? Like, er, that was, that was cool, but I like it here too. But we can, hey, we can pick up, no problem. Like, nah, we ain't moving. Okay, so what did, he, what, did he change his name or something? Was it going to be like father of like a whole bunch of nations? Like, nah, nah, I mean, we wish it was that. Like, well, come on, what is it? Like, what's the new thing? Like, well, um, we kind of all have to do something. Okay, what is it, man? I'm game, right? No, 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 George. Uh, you ain't going to be game for this. Uh, we got to get out a knife and like do something pretty drastic. And I will discontinue the mock conversation. You remember why God did that? He said, look, as your foreskin is cut, I am going to show that you are removed and you are mine. You are cut off to me. You're going to be separate. You're going to be cut off from the world and you're mine. I'm going to mark you. You are mine. I am yours. I am your God. You are my people. It was the fundamental marker to a Jew's identity. And to assume that one had that marker and they were not one of God's people was in many Jews' mind in Paul's day. That was what was blasphemy. Paul says, look, even that physical circumcision religious identity, whatever you're clinging to as an identity marker, it's not enough. Oh, in church, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of imagination or applicable skill to put ourselves here, does it? 
How many of us in this room, and we, if we are honest with ourselves, oh, yes, I'm okay, seven years old, VBS, circle, circle, dot, dot, now I got my gospel shot, I'm good. My card. Or, man, I'm a member. I'm a, I'm a founding member. Alberta Baptist Church. I was there before the tornado. I was there before. Or, man, are you walking with the Lord? Man, I was baptized when I was 12. Ah, that's not what we're saying. Are you, are you walking with the Lord? Are, you, are you, you feel the effects of the good news, the gospel of Jesus? I was baptized when I was 12. How easy it is for us. All of those great, wonderful things, church membership, Vacation Bible school, walking aisles, praying prayers of salvation, and then, man, getting dunked, you know? That's what baptism is. It's a celebration of identification. This one here, he or she, they're identifying with Jesus. Just as he died and rose again, they're saying, I have died and I have been raised again. Amen. It is the identification marker for the Christian. And Paul says, Oh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous if you place your confidence in that. What Paul is teaching here is, first of all, nationality has nothing to do with being right with God. Are you a Christian? Well, I was born in America. (laughs) No, that's not what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter if you're from America, from Argentina, from Russia, Rwanda. That's not... What it matters with the coming of Jesus Christ, all geographical boundaries are are meaningless. Ethnicity does not either put us forward or push us backward from the accessibility of the good news found in Jesus. Nationality has nothing to do with being right with God. Secondly, rituality has little to do with being right with God or ritualism, if you prefer that. Our baptism, our walking the aisle, our membership, our confirmation class. Again, they're all good if they point as a sign to something else. But they're dangerous if they become the destination. If my baptism is pointing to, yes, that fact. Jesus died, he rose again. I'm in him by faith. I have died, I've risen again. Awesome. That's a great sign. If it's destination... Paul says it's dangerous. Why? Because, number three, we need the Spirit's work. Spirituality has everything to do with being right with God. Verse 28, but a Jew is one inwardly, excuse me, no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, Not by just the law itself without the Spirit's animation. Spirituality has everything to do with being right with God because we need power for the obedience that God requires. And church, our religious identity and our religious activity on their own are not enough to provide that power. What's the only thing to provide that power? The gospel, right? He said, oh, the gospel, that's a little anticlimactic. Because that's what Pastor Keith always says, or Pastor Colby always says. Like, can you like, whip something else up? No. 
Because that's the only thing that gives us power for the obedience, which we looked at last week, whereby God will judge us without partiality. Safe place, the only safe place to put our confidence is in the gospel. See, Paul, he is building on this argument, isn't he? He's, he's working up. He wants to really make, let the offense of the gospel set in. Hey, you, as our pastors have been telling us, you old, your younger brother, you prodigal, look, you are under condemnation. But hey, you older brother, you self-righteous older brother, you're under condemnation on your own, on your own. I want you to feel it. You feel it? You feel it? Okay, feel it again. You feel it again. And then he's leading us to chapter three, verse 21, where he says, but now the righteousness of God, this rightness that God has and that we don't and we can't produce, but he can provide this righteousness of God, chapter three, verse 21, has now been revealed. And the law is not the vehicle that brings it to us. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God to the Jew, the Jew and the Greek. Now we're all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Only safe place to put our confidence is the gospel because only in the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the news that we have of someone who says, you know what, I'll bleed for your self-righteousness. Your self-righteousness, as we saw last week, is storing up wrath. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna drink everything you've stored up down on the cross. And with my cross, as Colossians 2 say, says, I will circumcise you with a circumcision made without hands. I'll cut off your body of flesh and I'll give you this new heart. The gospel provides us with heart transformation. When the gospel sets in, it provides us with heart transformation. And that's what the law and the prophets have been saying all along, right? That's why Paul says, look, they bore witness to it. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six. You know what the book of Deuteronomy is? It's not the second law, it's the retelling of the first law. And I can imagine Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he's like, man, I already told you all this in Exodus. I'm telling you again. He gets to chapter 30, he's like, you know what? God's just got to circumcise your heart, okay? You can't do it, I can't do it. God's just got to circumcise our heart. And God will, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six, God's gonna circumcise your heart. Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, all these new covenant promises are pointing to this heart transformation, which is why Jesus and Nick at night in John chapter three, Jesus looks at Nicodemus as he's telling him this whole idea of, hey, listen, you, you have to be born again. Nicodemus is saying, whoa, hop back in my mama. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of the law? You don't understand this? What did you do with Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11 and Deuteronomy 30 verse six and everything else in there? What did you do, Nicodemus? Gospel's the only thing that provides us with what we can never get on our own, heart transformation, amen? And when we have a transformed heart, we have a new identity, and we're not placing our confidence in our old religious identity. We're saying, oh, I have confidence in this gospel identity that God's given me. 
It gives us heart transformation. It also provides for us then the Spirit's enablement. Because that's the great thing about the law. The law was never meant to say, oh, let's flush it down the toilet. The law was meant to devastate, illuminate, and then navigate. Devastate us to make us realize, man, we can't, we can't meet the standard. Illuminate us to the only one who ever did, namely Jesus. And then once we receive him by faith, we get a new heart. Now the law navigates us in all the various areas of life. And so, yes, we find that now we have this new heart and now the spirit is enabling us to do those things by which God requires of us and for which we'll give an account on the judgment day. And so now we have this new activity, this spirit-enabled activity. We don't put our confidence in our old religious activity. No, there's gospel activity now. By grace, through faith, God, by his spirit, is making me more like Jesus and making my life look more like one that should look like if I say I'm living in the light. And then lastly, why is it safe to place our confidence in the gospel? Well, it provides us with heart transformation, provides us with spirit enablement, and it also places us under God's smile. We've got a new identity, new activity, and a new outcome. No longer do we reach God's judgment seat and we have the conduct of one who's physically uncircumcised condemn us that a condemnation we have. Look at this. This is sweet. Don't close your Bible yet. Don't close it. Don't close it. I hear it closing. Don't close Look on the screen if you already closed. His, who's the one who's placing his confidence in the gospel and that alone, not his religious identity or activity. His praise is not from man, but from God. You know what that means? It means to the one who is trusting in the gospel alone, God looks at you smiles. The Olympian doesn't care about what the crowd does necessarily. He's just concerned, what's that judge going to hold up on the scorecard? And for the one who is not placing his confidence in his religious identity or his religious activity, but sees the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, that's the only safe place for me to place my confidence. God says, amen. He smiles on that. You know, in that BB gun war, we tested those sunglasses. I mean, we're not that foolish. We set up a little scarecrow and we put those little vanilla ice glasses on that thing. And we took a couple of shots at it. And they didn't break. We thought, all right, 100%. You know, perhaps today, God has shot his gospel BB to finally shatter someone's confidence in this room. You've heard the gospel, you've heard the word preached so many times in your life and it's just bounced off, bounced off, bounced off. But maybe today God has finally got the gospel in such a position and your heart where it needs to be, where man, you realize my religious identity, I shattered. How many teach the Bible here or there? Or I shattered. Perhaps today for the first time, someone in this room is able to see the prospect of God's smile. And maybe one of you, you're ready to finally embrace the gospel that 
places you under that smile and under rich pleasure for all eternity. Maybe today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as uh, Jennifer and the team come, we just, we just simply ask as we...